0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the London School of Economics, to those who have come from outside the school. Uh, there was a couple who came down from Scotland and have been queuing since midday uh, for this uh, lecture, and we were pleased that they were, we were able to uh, get them in. Uh, we have two other lecture theatres where this is being podcast or webcast, and I think you can also see it. Uh, on your uh, computer on the LSE system so there are a large number of people which of course is entirely a testament to the uh, popularity of our speaker this evening Professor Noam Chomsky I should say that this lecture is held under the auspices of our Centre for the Study of Human Rights and of course Professor Chomsky's subject this evening is Human Rights in the 21st Century and we couldn't have uh, anybody more appropriate to handle that tricky subject than Noam Chomsky. I'm not going to read out the titles of his 40 books on linguistics and his similar number of books on foreign policy issues. Indeed, I'm extremely hesitant about introducing him at all, since almost certainly I will make some error in grammar or syntax... (laughs) which will reveal some dark secrets about my uh, ancestry. Um, <laughs> but I think that uh, Noam Chomsky epitomizes what we aim to do at the LSE in that he is, if you like, the personification of the engaged academic, someone whose scholarship is of unquestioned quality but who also, throughout his academic life, has remained engaged with the great issues of the day. He has been a professor at MIT since 1955, when I was only just alive, um, and continues to lecture and teach there, as well, of course, as producing a remarkable number of publications and commentaries on the passing scene. So, without any more intro- introduction, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Chomsky. He will talk to us and then take questions afterwards. You are very welcome to the schools. Thank you.
1: Well, uh, a few hours ago, I was on a panel at uh, SOAS with an old friend, Tariq Ali. Uh, talking about foreign policy in the Middle East and uh, I was supposed to talk on U.S. foreign policy and he was supposed to talk on British foreign policy. Uh, he opened by saying, it's easy, there isn't any. Uh, I'm inclined to say the same thing about the human rights in the, the millennium. But, <laughs> but that's too easy, so I'll try to explain why I might have said that. Uh, well, before trying to address the current state of human rights and the prospects, it's worth considering for a moment what's uh, permitted uh, to enter that uh, sacred canon. And the question constantly arises. So, for example, quite concretely, uh, for example, 10 days ago on the uh, International Day for the Eradication of Poverty, when Amnesty, Amnesty International declared that poverty is the world's worst human rights crisis, or two days before that on World Food Day, when the uh, U.N. Aid food Agency reported that the number of people uh, uh, going hungry uh, rose to over a billion, uh, while the rich countries sharply cut uh, their uh, food aid uh, because of the priority of uh, ensuring that bankers get big bonuses. Uh, but then uh, Oxfam reported at the same day that uh, 16,000 children are dying a day from hunger related causes, that's twice Rwanda level killing just among children and not for a hundred days but every day and increase uh, and the issues even arise in the richest country in the world uh, where the question of whether healthcare is a human right is being hotly debated right now while approximately 45,000 people die a year from lack of any insurance and unknown numbers from utterly inadequate insurance in the only country I know of where health care is strictly rationed but by wealth, not by need, although it's not claimed. Uh, it's, uh, it's easy to add examples, what's crucial about all these cases is that the lives could be saved by a tiny fraction of the GDP of the rich countries. So the question really is whether they recognize a right to life among the human rights. And the answer apparently is no. Uh, There is a gold standard on human rights, the founding documents of the United Nations, the Charter and the Universal Declaration. The Charter guarantees the right to be protected from what was declared at Nuremberg to be the supreme international crime. different from other war crimes in that it encompasses all the evil that follows. Crime of aggression, quite well defined. Uh, in practice, the Charter has long ago been revoked. Uh, article 2, Section 4, the operative article, uh, uh, is in the waste basket. Uh, when we are carrying out aggression. United States, Britain, other great power, other friends, uh, there's no such restriction when aggression is carried out by uh, Russia or Iraq, Saddam Hussein in Iraq and so on. Then we live by our principles, uh, announced principles. Uh, the United States has been in large measure the global sovereign since World War II and remains so uh, despite the increasing diversity of the global economy for decades. So its uh, practices are of considerable significance in considering the question that we're looking at, the prospects for human rights. So it's therefore of great significance, for example, that the United States is exempt from international law. And sometimes there are candid explanations of the reasons for the U.S. exemption, it's one example of what's sometimes called American exceptionalism. Uh, except for the fact that every other great power is the same. Uh, one instructive case it was the U.S. war against Nicaragua in the 1980s, which incidentally falls quite precisely under uh, the definition of aggression uh, as formulated at Nuremberg. Well, as you know, Nicaragua brought a case against the United States to the uh, International Court of Justice. case was presented by Abram Chase. He's a well-known Harvard University law professor as former legal advisor to the State Department uh, most of his case was rejected by the court on the grounds that when the United States accepted world court jurisdiction in 1946 it entered a reservation excluding <laughs> itself from prosecution under any multilateral treaty. It includes the UN Charter, mm-hmm. the Charter of the Organization of American States and so on. So that's a self-exemption that kind of virtually crosses the board. Uh, So the court restricted its deliberations to customary international law and a bilateral U.S.-Nicaragua treaty. And even on these very narrow grounds, the court did charge uh, Washington with unlawful use of force, which in lay language means international terrorism, and ordered it to terminate the crimes and pay substantial reparations, which would have gone far beyond paying off the huge debt that was strangling Nicaragua. Well, Washington dismissed the judgment, then vetoed two Security Council resolutions, uh, supporting the judgment and calling on all states to observe international law. As usual, the U.S. was helped out by Britain, uh, which abstained. Uh, Congress at once passed uh, bipartisan legislation uh, to escalate the war. Uh, The court was dismissed by New York Times editors as a hostile forum, so therefore it was irrelevant, Uh, uh, just as uh, the United States and Israel dismiss the UN today, quite generally. Uh, Well, U.S. rejection of the court decision in the Nicaragua case was explained Uh, by the State Department Legal Advisor, uh, Abram Sofer, he's now George Shultz Senior Fellow in Foreign Policy and National Security Affairs at the Hoover Institute in Stanford. Uh, He explained that the majority, I'll quote him, the majority of the world often opposes the United States on important international questions so that we must reserve to ourselves the power to determine which matters fall essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of the United States as determined by the United States. In this case, uh, massive international terrorism that practically destroyed the targeted country. That's honest and accurate. He should be praised for that. I think his appointment is merited. Uh, His explanation, and uh, much else like it, really deserves... uh, a good deal more than attention than it re- receives. What it receives is approximately zero. Well, there's not much point going on about the self-exemption of the powerful from international law, because it's just too obvious to, to discuss, at least for those who are willing to look. So I'll put that aside and turn to the second document, the Universal Declaration, uh, passed at about the same time. Well, the rights I referred to at the beginning fall under socioeconomic rights. It's Article 25 primarily of the the UD. But that, too, is in the wastebasket. Uh, One leading academic specialist uh, on these matters, uh, Philip Alston, uh, he writes that after a brief detour caused by popular pressure in the 1970s, uh, U.S. human rights policy returned under Reagan to the unqualified rejection of economic, social, and cultural rights as rights. And that continues. That means unqualified rejection of two-thirds of the U.D. And it should be stressed that these provisions that are in the wastebasket have exactly the same status as the others. That's never been in question since the U.D. was approved in 1948. It's been emphasized again repeatedly. crucially at the 2005 UN World Summit. And in fact, Washington formally agreed while rejecting the principle under the usual veil of silence. There have been some open expressions of utter contempt for the guarantees of socioeconomic rights. Uh, Case in point is uh, Soviet uh, UN Ambassador Andrei Vyshinsky who dismissed them as a, a collection of pious phrases? Uh, he was joined by U.S. U.N. Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick. For her, socioeconomic rights are a letter to Santa Claus. Neither nature, experience, nor probability informs these lists of entitlements, which are subject to no constraints except those of the mind and appetite of their authors. Uh, the same stand was elaborated by Paula Dobriansky, under Secretary of State for Global Affairs under Bush II, uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Human Affairs in the Reagan and Bush I administrations. And in that capacity, she took pains to dispel what she called myths about human rights. Uh, the most salient being that uh, so-called, she called them, so-called economic and social rights constitute human rights. That's a myth, and she uh, denounced the efforts to obfuscate a human rights discourse by introducing these spurious rights which happened to be entrenched in the Universal Declaration formulated at U.S. initiative, but explicitly rejected by Washington, not alone, of course, though it's perhaps unusual in the forthrightness of the rejection. Well, essentially the same view was Repeated, expressed in 1990 by the U.S. representative to the U.N. Commission on Human Rights, that was Ambassador Morris Abram, Uh, he was explaining Washington's solitary veto of the U.N. resolution on the right to development, which virtually repeated the uh, socioeconomic provisions of the U.D. Uh, These are not rights, uh, Abrams informed the commission. They yield conclusions that seem preposterous. Uh, Such ideas are little more than an empty vessel into which vague hopes and inchoate expectations can be poured, and they are even a dangerous incitement. Uh, The fundamental error of the right to development is that it takes Article 25 of the U.D. to mean what it clearly states, uh, not understanding that it's a mere letter to Santa Claus. Big problem. And U.S. practice conforms quite precisely to these principles. So the U.S. scarcely ever even ratifies enabling conventions, GA General Assembly enabling conventions, that put some teeth into the letter from Santa Claus. Uh, one example is the Convention on the Rights of the Child. It's been ratified by all countries except two: the United States and Somalia doesn't have a government, so can't ratify it. Uh, uh, on uh, the International Con- Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, uh, that's the leading treaty for the protect- protection of the implementation of the subcategory of rights that the West pretends to uphold. Uh, well, I'll quote Human Rights Watch and American, uh, the ACLU, uh, in a joint report on, hum- on U.S. noncompliance with its provisions. This was back in the halcyon days before George W. Bush. Uh, It was ratified. The U.S. did ratify the convention, but after a very long delay, but with provisions uh, to render it inapplicable to the United States. So the report concludes that the ratification was an empty act for Americans. That happens to be a considerable understatement. Uh, the very few conventions that Washington has ratified are accompanied by reservations that render them inapplicable to the United States. That's across the board. includes, for example, the Genocide Convention. The U.S. did ratify it after about 40 years, uh, but with a reservation. It uh, doesn't apply to the United States. Uh, a few years ago, the U.S. appealed to the to that reservation in exempting itself from Yugoslavia's case against NATO, and the court agreed correctly. Uh, the U.S. The court can take jurisdiction only when countries accept it, uh, and the U.S. insists on the right to commit genocide, as was indeed reported, but uh, with no comment. So, normal. Uh, a number, another example is the UN Convention Against Torture, That's been a topic of considerable recent discussion. Uh, The rulings of uh, George Bush's Justice Department were bitterly condemned with uh, laments that uh, under Bush uh, we have lost our way, Uh, but very few asked what way we had lost. Uh, Torture has been routine practice from the early days of the conquest of the national territory and then beyond as imperial ventures extended to uh, the Philippines and Haiti and and elsewhere. And of course torture was among the least of the many crimes that have darkened U.S. history uh, along with its uh, much as in the case of other great powers. Uh, Well accordingly it was a little surprising to see the reactions even by some of the most eloquent and forthright critics of Bush Malfeasance. For example, that we used to be a nation of moral ideals, and never before Bush have our leaders so utterly betrayed what our nation, everything our nation stands for. That happened to be Paul Krugman uh, right after the release of the torture memos. Well, to say the least, that common, near universal view among left liberals uh, it reflects a pretty slanted view of history. Uh, furthermore, it's far from clear that the Bush Justice Department violated U.S. law. Uh, That was actually pointed out by uh, Sanford Levinson, a well-known legal scholar, who observed that uh, there is a legal basis for the Justice Department rulings uh, authorizing torture. Uh, Washington did ratify the anti-torture convention, uh, but only after the Senate provided uh, what Levinson calls a more interrogator-friendly definition of torture. That in the uh, in the convention, uh, that was a version used by the, pred- the President Bush's legal advisors in justifying the practices in Guantanamo, Abu uh, Ghraib, uh, Afghanistan, and who knows where else, because it's uh, uh, many secret prisons. Uh, that's not even to speak of uh, those sent by rendition to countries where torture is virtually guaranteed practices that have been extended under obama along with uh, other severe uh, bush administrations violations of elementary human rights like denial of habeas corpus uh, in this case the uh, uh, still in courts the obama administration is appealing a decision by a hardline bush appointee who held that the supreme court ruling on guantanamo applies also to the U.S. prison in Bagram in Afghanistan. And Bush's Justice Department maintains that the U.S. government must be authorized to kidnap people anywhere in the world on whatever grounds it likes and send them to its secret prison system without charges or, and without rights, which is perhaps an indication of the prospects for human rights in the new millennium. look at tomorrow's newspapers, you may see uh, uh, a report on today's decision of the Obama administration to uh, extend uh, Bush's military commissions, which is so radically in violation of elementary legal uh, provisions that it's hardly worth talking about. Well, further uh, facts about uh, torture are discussed by uh, historian Alfred McCoy. He's the author of some of the most important works on the history of torture. and He points out that the highly sophisticated CIA torture paradigms developed in the 1950s uh, keep primarily to what is called mental torture, the kind that doesn't leave marks, uh, not physical torture, which is considered less effective in turning people into uh, pliant vegetables. Uh, The CIA was uh, relying on what he calls the KGB's most devastating torture techniques and also current experimental work that was going on at the time in universities uh, on sensory deprivation and such things. Uh, McCoy reviews how the Reagan administration revised the UN torture convention, I'm quoting, with four detailed diplomatic reservations focused on just one word in the convention's 26 printed pages, the word mental. Uh, So these reservations define, redefine torture to exclude the techniques refined by the CIA, taken over from the KGB, and applied worldwide. Uh, When Clinton sent the UN Convention to Congress for ratification in 1994, he included the Reagan Reservations and the President and Congress uh, therefore exempted the core of the CIA torture program paradigm from the U.S. interpretation of the torture convention. And these reservations, McCoy points out, were reproduced verbatim in domestic legislation enacted to give legal force to the U.N. convention. And that, he says, is the political landmine that detonated with such phenomenal force in the Abu Ghraib scandal and the shameful military commissions act that passed with bipartisan support in 2006 and has been reduced by Obama in a slightly different form but effectively the same. So protection from torture goes the way of socioeconomic rights. Uh, It does not enter into the human rights canon. Well, there are other revealing examples. Uh, To select one instructive example. For 60 years, the United States has refused to ratify the core principle of international labor law, which guarantees freedom of association. Uh, Legal analysts call that the untouchable treaty in American politics and observe there's never even been any debate about the matter. Uh, This is particularly striking alongside the intense dedication to enforcement of rights of corporations. As for example, in safeguarding uh, monopoly pricing rights of unprecedented uh, scale, a crucial part of the World Trade Organization agreements. Uh, such contrasts lead to situations that are highly revealing about the prospects for human rights. So, for example, right at this moment, the two American political parties are competing in Congress to see which can uphold more savagely its dedication to the sadistic doctrine that undocumented immigrants must be denied health care. That's going on day after day. Uh, And their stand is actually consistent with the legal principle established by the Supreme Court that these creatures are not persons under the law. So, for example, the 14th Amendment, which says that persons have their rights protected, doesn't apply to these things, whatever they are. Uh, At the very same moment, the Supreme Court is considering the question of whether corporations should be permitted to purchase elections openly instead of doing it indirectly the way they do now. And that's a complex constitutional matter because the courts have determined, it's a core principle of Anglo-American law that uh, unlike undocumented immigrants, corporations are real persons under the law and in fact have rights far beyond persons of flesh and blood, uh, including the rights that are granted by the mislabeled uh, free trade agreements, which have very little to do with free trade and surely are not agreements, at least if uh, citizens are part of their countries because they mostly oppose them. Uh, these quite revealing coincidences elicit no comment, itself an interesting fact, indicating that the law is indeed a solemn and majestic affair. Well, I don't want to suggest that nothing has changed or improved with regard to concern for human rights. A lot has changed. A significant human rights culture has developed among the general population, and that has had consequences that governments and other power systems uh, have been unable to ignore completely. It's a very important topic. I can't pursue it now. Uh, Let's turn instead to the interesting question about how official doctrines have evolved since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, Prior to that, there was a reflexive justification for the resort to violence, uh, forceful intervention, subversion, sabotage, terror, other prima facie violations of international law and human rights. Simple explanation, the Russians are coming. Uh, but with the fall of the Berlin Wall, which uh, we will com- commemorate with due solemnity uh, in a few days, uh, the that option was gone. Now, policy was not about to change. Uh, that was made very clear by the first Bush administration, then in office uh, they announced immediately that in national security strategy in the budget uh, which was almost never reported but they went through carefully and said everything's going to remain the same uh, unchanged with new pretexts. Uh, so for example we still need a huge military force uh, to protect ourselves from the technological sophistication of third world powers. You're not supposed to laugh. Uh, that's because the Russians are gone. Uh, we have to maintain our intervention forces aimed at the Middle East and then they added where the threats to our interests could not be laid at the Kremlin's door, no contrary, sorry folks, we've been lying to you for 50 years but the clouds have lifted so we just have to keep them there to prevent independent nationalism and it went through point by point, everything will remain the same, we need new pretexts, uh, And as if by magic uh, one was provided by the intellectual community their role in great powers. Uh, the 1990s were quickly declared to be the opening of a new era in the West, which is dedicated to the emerging norm of humanitarian intervention. Well, That allows you to do what you want. Uh, the new era was accompanied by quite an impressive chorus of self-glorification, uh, which may have no con- counterpart in intellectual history, at least I'm not aware of any. Uh, that all peaked Uh, in 1999 as the U.S. and Britain prepared to bomb Serbia. Uh, That's an attack uh, featured in Western discourse as the jewel in the crown of the emerging norm, where the U.S., I'll give you a brief sample, uh, the U.S. was at the height of its glory in a noble phase of its foreign policy with a saintly glow uh, acting from altruism alone in leading the enlightened states on their missions of mercy, uh, led by the idealistic new world bent on ending in humanity, opening a new page in history by acting on principles and values alone for the first time. That's just a few of the accolades by eminent, respected Western intellectuals. Uh, there are a few difficulties confronting the flattering Self-image that was constructed with such enthusiasm. Uh, one problem is was that the traditional victims of Western intervention vigorously object. Uh, the meeting of the South Summit of 133 states uh, convened in April 2000 issued a declaration, surely with the bombing of Serbia in mind, uh, rejecting what they called the so-called right in quotes the so-called right of humanitarian intervention which has no legal basis in the United Nations Charter or in the general principles of international law. Uh, That wording reaffirms the UN Declaration on Friendly Relations of 1970. The wording was repeated uh, in later years among others at the ministerial meeting of the non-aligned movements in Malaysia in 2006 again representing the traditional victims in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Arab world. Uh, the same conclusion was drawn in 2004 by the high-level UN panel on threats, challenges, and change, In this, at this time with prominent uh, Western figures participating. The panel adopted the view of the International Court of Justice and the non-aligned movement and concluded that, Article 51 of the charter, you know, the one that has a limited option, very narrowly defined option for the use of force, uh, that Article 51 of the charter needs neither extension or reconsider restriction of its long understood scope. Uh, the panel added that for those impatient with such a response, which of course bars the jewel in the crown and many other acts of uh, current western violence, uh, for those, the answer must be that in a world full of perceived potential threats, the risk to global order and the norm of intervention, non-intervention on which it continues to be based is simply too great for the legality of unilateral prevention preventive action as distinct from collectively endorsed action by the Security Council for it to be accepted. Allowing one to act uh, would... Allow all, and obviously unthinkable. Uh, the same position was endorsed by the uh, UN World Summit the year later, again af- affirming the unchanging position of the Global South, the traditional victims. In fact, the, this reiterated the first World Court decision, the Corfu Channel case, which said pretty much the same thing. Uh, 1949, I guess. Well. Evidently, humanitarian intervention wasn't going to work, uh, although it lingers, so something else was needed. And lo and behold, uh, a new doctrine emerged uh, just in time, uh, what's called Responsibility to Protect, familiarly known as R2P. It's now the topic of uh, very substantial literature, uh, many conferences, uh, new organizations and journals (laughs) and much praise, self-praise. And the praise is justified in at least one respect. Uh, We might recall uh, Gandhi's response to the question of what he thought about Western civilization. He's alleged to have said that it would be a good thing. Uh, And the same uh, response holds for, same comment holds for R2P. It's a good idea. Uh, On that much, everyone should agree. Uh, But then the usual problems arise. First of all, just what is R2P? and secondly, when does it apply? Well, on the first question, what is R2P? There are two versions which are commonly conflated in the literature, although they differ radically. One version is the position of the Global South, which is formulated in the 2005 UN World Summit. And a very different position is formulated in the founding document of R2P, That's the report of the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty on Responsibility to Protect, of which the leading figure and spokesperson is uh, Australia's Gareth Evans. Uh, It's important to distinguish these two radically different conceptions, which again are constantly conflated. The World Summit uh, reiterated, pretty much reiterated, uh, positions already adopted by the United Nations. The only change at most was focusing more sharply on certain components of what had already been accepted. Uh, The summit reiterates the stand of the South and the high-level panel and the World Court that forceful action can only be carried out under Security Council authorization, though it does add one exception. It's an exception for states of the African Union, uh, which they had already decided on, and this was authorized, uh, that grants a very qualified right of intervention within the African Union itself uh, under very narrow circumstances. Well if that exception were generalized, uh, the consequences would be pretty interesting. Uh, For example, Latin American countries would be authorized to carry out large-scale terror in the United States uh, to protect victims of U.S. violence uh, within the the hemisphere, within the A conclusion that's instantaneous, but it's never drawn oddly. Uh, we can therefore put the African Union exception aside, although it's interesting that it's commonly adduced by proponents of R2P to show that it's not an instrument of imperialism, but is rather rooted in the South, more deception, as it is in the World Summit version, but not the version preferred by the West. Uh, the crucial paragraphs of the World Summit Declaration, everyone agrees, are paragraphs 138 and 139. You can look them up. Uh, their provisions had never been seriously contested, and in fact, had been affirmed and implemented, for example, with regard to apartheid South Africa. Uh, furthermore, the Security Council had already determined that it can even use force uh, under Chapter 7 to end massive human rights abuses. Civil War, violation of civil liberties, and so on. Uh, These are resolutions uh, 925, 929, 940, mid-1994. And as a number of analysts, legal analysts have rightly observed, uh, most states are signatories to conventions that legally oblige them to respect the human rights of their citizens, R2P, exception not mentioned is the United States. Uh, It's therefore not surprising at all that the General (coughs) Assembly adopted the summit declaration, while the sharp north-south split on the so-called right of humanitarian intervention persisted without any change. Well, the second version of R2P in the Evans report differs fundamentally from the summit declaration. In its crucial paragraph, the Commission considers the situation, I'll quote, in which the Security Council rejects a proposal or fails to deal with it in a reasonable time. In that case, the report authorizes action within area of jurisdiction by regional or sub-regional organizations under Chapter 8 of the Charter subject to their seeking subsequent authorization from the Security Council. Now that paragraph is plain was written to apply retrospectively to the bombing of Serbia, just what was forcefully rejected by the Global South and the World Summit version of R2P. Uh, This provision of the Evans Commission effectively authorizes the powerful and nobody else to use force at will. And the reason is very clear. Uh, The powerful unilaterally determine their area of jurisdiction. So the OAS and the AU, African Union, they can't do it, but NATO can and does. So NATO unilaterally determined that its area of jurisdiction includes the Balkans, but rather interestingly their area of jurisdiction does not include NATO itself, Uh, where at about the same time shocking crimes were committed against Kurds in southeastern Turkey throughout the 90s, all off the agenda. Uh, because the decisive military and diplomatic support for them uh, was by the leader of the free world. Uh, it's peaking in the very year when it was praised for its the noble phase of its foreign policy with a saintly glow, of course with the aid of other NATO powers, so plainly that couldn't be included. Uh, NATO later determined that its area of jurisdiction extends to Afghanistan, that's what's being debated now, and in fact well beyond. The Secretary General of uh, uh, NATO, Dutch Jaap de Hoop Scheffer, he informed the NATO meeting in 2007 that NATO troops have to guard pipelines that transport oil and gas that's directed to the West, and more generally have to protect sea routes used by tankers and other crucial infrastructure of the energy system. That's global. These expansive rights, uh, courted by the Evans Commission, are in practice restricted to NATO alone, radically violating the principles adopted by the World Summit. They explicitly open the door wide uh, to resort to R2P uh, as a weapon of imperial intervention at will. They fortify the long-standing U.S. hope and demand that uh, NATO be regarded as a instrument of U.S. power. Part of the reason is to make sure that Europe doesn't move in an independent direction, an old, long-term foreign policy concern. Well, let's turn to the second question. How is R2P applied in practice? Uh, The answer, I won't run through the details, but the answer will surprise absolutely no one who has the slightest familiarity with history or elementary understanding of the structure of power. Again, I'm not going to run through the highly selective example, uh, applications, but just take a couple of examples. So, for example, there's no thought of devoting pennies to protect the huge number of people dying from hunger and lack of health care or deprivation of other rights that are dismissed as myths uh, uh, and uh, dangerous incitement by Washington, such as the examples I mentioned. Uh, protected populations are also barred from protection. For example, the victims of the U.S.-Israeli attack in Gaza who are protected persons under the Geneva Conventions uh, but uh, merit no protection under R2P. Uh, Those who uh, are the direct responsibility of the Security Council are also unable to appeal to R2P. A striking example was Iraqis in the 1990s. Subjected to murderous sanctions under the saintly glow of Clinton's policies and Blair's, formally administered by the Security Council, but basically U.S. British sanctions. Uh, These were condemned as genocidal by the administrators of the U.N. programs, the respected international diplomats, uh, Dennis Halliday and successor Hans von Sponek, uh, both of whom resigned uh, for that reason. Uh, or the victims of the worst massacres of recent years, which are in the eastern Congo. Uh, And here only the ultra-cynical might suspect that the (coughs) neglect has something to do with the fact that the worst offender is uh, U.S. ally Rwanda and that the multinationals are making a mint from robbing the region's rich mineral resources with the crucial aid of the militias that are tearing the place to shreds, everyone who has a cell phone is benefiting from that, and and on and on, just as the rational would expect. Uh, Actually, R2P is rather like what's called democracy promotion. The leading scholar advocate of democracy promotion, a neo-Reaganite, Thomas Carruthers, he ruefully concludes from his careful inquiries, that the U.S. promotes democracy if and only if that stance conforms to strategic and economic interests. It's a pattern that runs through all administrations right to the present. He concludes that leaders are, for some strange reason, schizophrenic, uh, like they need psychiatric treatment. Uh, He's kind of puzzled about this. Uh, Critics sometimes speak about double standards but there's no puzzle and there's a single standard. Uh, It was described accurately enough by uh, Adam Smith, who we're supposed to revere but not read. Uh, He was speaking of England in his day, where, as he put it, the merchants and manufacturers are the principal architects of policy and they make sure that their own interests are most peculiarly attended to, however grievous the effect on the people of England but particularly the victims of what he called the savage injustice of the Europeans elsewhere, thinking specifically of India. Well, a lot has changed since his day, but that principle remains as one of the few operative principles of international and domestic affairs. Uh, There was great indignation last summer when the president of the General Assembly, Miguel Descoto, called a session devoted to R2P Uh, The London Economist warned of the danger that, in their words, an angry, inconclusive General Assembly debate might undermine this idealistic effort to establish a new humanitarian principle, now coming under attack at the United Nations, an attack that the journal conjured up. As I mentioned, virtually nobody opposes R2P in the form adopted at the World Summit though there's very good reason to oppose the Evans Commission version and the selective application of the summit declaration. Uh, The Economist editors were, however, encouraged that the angry opponents they conjured up, of whom I should say I was one, uh, they would at least be countered by one panel member, quoting Gareth Evans, a former Australian foreign minister and roving global troubleshooter, who makes a bold and passionate claim on behalf of a three-word expression, uh, which, in large part, thanks to his efforts, now belongs to the language of diplomacy, responsibility to protect. And their ode to Evans is accompanied by a picture showing him with his hand on his face, uh, grieving that the bold, his bold and passionate claim is coming under threat, and the subtitle says... A lifelong passion to protect. Well, the journal chose not to run a different picture from about the same time, which sheds some light on his lifelong passion. It shows him with his Indonesian counterpart Ali Alatas joyously celebrating uh, celebrating the treaty that they had just signed, uh, granting Australia the right to rob the oil resources of what the treaty calls the Indonesian province of East Timor the tre- treaty offered nothing to the people of East Timor or their remnants the ones who managed to survive the western backed onslaught on East Timor and it's furthermore the only legal agreement anywhere in the world that effectively recognizes Indonesia's right to rule East Timor uh, so the Australian press reported directly as far as I know now that Evans Alatas picture is quite familiar among people who happen to see a problem when their own countries provide the decisive support for aggression that led to one of the worst slaughters of the modern period continuing right through the chorus of self-congratulation in 1999 at a level well beyond Kosovo before the NATO bombing and of course the past record was far exceeded the atrocities of the Balkans. Well that's all an uncomfortable topic Uh, so the factual record is best avoided or denied, as is regularly done, uh, sometimes in quite remarkable ways, which I won't review. Well, the journal's choice of a photograph should come as no surprise. Uh, Twenty years earlier, when the basic facts of the near-genocidal Western-backed slaughter, when those facts were quite well known, uh, the editors described the great mass murderer and torturer uh, Suharto as at heart benign, which indeed he was towards foreign investors at least, and he denounced the what they called the propagandists for the guerrillas in East Timor and Irian Jaya with their talk of the army 's sag- savagery and use of torture uh, that in- the propagandists include the church in East Timor uh, thousands of refugees in Australia and Portugal, which somehow journalists couldn 't find. Uh, Uh, Western diplomats and the journalists who did choose to see, uh, the most respected international rights monitors, and more recently a UN truth commission, all propagandists rather than intrepid champions of human rights, uh, because they had quite the wrong story to tell, that's the usual criterion, and who could be a more noble and passionate supporter of R2P than the person who celebrated his achievement in granting Australia the rights to the sole resources of the territory that had been brutalized with full Australian support uh, while adding the explanation that it matters little because, to quote, the world is a pretty unfair place uh, littered with examples of acquisition by force. So this doesn't really matter. That's all true. Uh, but uh, th- none of this seems to be a matter of concern uh, for the advocates of highly selective R2P and also to the Western intellectuals who feign great indignation at the other fellows' crimes while easily condoning or denying their own uh, updating uh, a leading theme of the inglorious history of intellectuals from the earliest records. Uh, Well, what then are the hopes for human rights in the new millennium? I think the answer is the one that does reverberate through history, including recent years. It's not a law of nature that we have to subordinate ourselves to the violence and deceit of the principal architects of policy and the doctrinal manipulation of the servants of power. As in the past, uh, an aroused and organized public can carve out space for real concern for human rights, including... R2P. In fact, today more easily than in the past because they can benefit from the legacy of past struggles and, and their achievements. Thanks.
0: very much we have uh, time for some questions so i hope that people will uh, both catch my eye which you have done um, and also will wait for a microphone to come so could, could we have a mic on the front row fourth one fourth person along and if you could give your name and if you could make sure you speak pretty loudly be, not just for us but because there are people in other halls listening and unless you Articulate So articulate, clearly. Thank you. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Simih. Is that right? Yep. Um, my question was, do you agree that uh, countries should intervene when there is a violation, for example, there's a humanitarian crisis? And if so, what would qualify as a humanitarian crisis? That is, at what stage does it become the country who's intervening, just using humanitarian uh, as a, uh, intervention as an excuse to um, further its...
1: Uh, It's interesting. Well, I I think that the World Summit uh, reached a good conclusion, Uh, the same conclusion as the high-level panel, the same conclusion as the World Court repeatedly since 1949. Uh, There can be a right of uh, intervention uh, when it's authorized by the Security Council. If individual countries uh, accept for themselves the right to use force in what they call the area of their jurisdiction, which is a right accorded only to the U.S. and NATO, because they can define their area of jurisdiction. Well, in that case, I think we get exactly the consequences that the court and the global summit and the high-level panel uh, anticipated, and which has, in fact, happened. Thank you.
0: Uh, Next one there. Yeah, guys guy standing up.
2: Uh, Hello, my name is John Unnikar from We Are Change Media. A recent scientific paper published in the peer-reviewed Open Chemical Physics Journal proves the presence of the military-grade incendiary nanothermite in dust samples taken from ground zero. This, coupled with the opinions of nearly a thousand architects and engineers that openly support the controlled demolition hypothesis, are inconsistent with the official explanations given by
0: the 9-11 Commission and the subsequent NIST reports. When these explanations have been contradicted by peer-reviewed science and have been disputed by so many experts in the relevant fields, how can you maintain your stance that the findings of the 9-11 Commission
2: are correct?
1: Well, what you're referring to is a statement by a thousand people, most of them basically unknown, who claim certain, make certain claims about technical facts Uh, which I'm in no position to evaluate. I don't know if there's nanothermite in the bottom of uh, Building 7 or if it means anything if there was. And the obvious thing for them to do is present their findings to the people who can make evaluations. So instead of sending 10,000 letters to me, they should send them to the Civil Engineering Department at MIT or other places, or they should publish their articles in uh, uh, in, uh, They publish their articles in in accessible scientific journals, just like other people do. So, for example, supporters of intelligent design, biologists, and there are some, they publish their articles in standard scientific journals so they can be discussed and uh, outsiders, like me, I don't know much about bacteria, uh, outsiders can make an evaluation of uh, what these claims amount to because of the debate. Well, that hasn't happened. you could say, and, you know, thousands of letters tell me that I should learn enough so that I can make the judgment myself. Well, you know, I know enough about science to know that you can't learn enough in a couple of hours on the Internet. Uh, if you want to understand these things, you're going to have to do what – there's a region, reason why, say, MIT has graduate courses in civil and mechanical engineering and uh, physics and math. I mean, you just can't pick it up by – you know, roaming around the internet and so the question is well should I take off uh, the time, years in fact uh, to learn the technical background and study the structural characteristics of the buildings uh, so that I can make some evaluation of you know, nanothermite or whatever it is and I think there's a good reason not to do that Be- <laughs> because these people you're referring to they don't seem to understand it are in fact working very hard to absolve George Bush and to implicate Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. And the reason is extremely simple. I mean, everyone agrees, this is uncontroversial, uh, that the uh, destruction of the World Trade Center was attributed to Saudis. Okay, now, suppose the Bush administration had done it. They'd have attributed it to Iraqis. I mean, they're trying very hard to find an excuse to invade Iraq. Uh, uh, and if they had attributed it to Iraqis, it would have been a, a walkaway. They'd immediately get total popular support. They'd get a UN resolution. Uh, and NATO would pass a supportive resolution. They could go straight and attack. Uh, when they attributed it to Saudis, first of all, they alienated their most powerful ally in the region, most important ally. And secondly, they forced themselves to jump through hoops to try to concoct some sort of a pretext for invading Iraq, you know, weapons of mass destruction, uh, connections between al-Qaeda and Saddam, you know, the whole business which, of course, collapsed, exposing them to ridicule. And they also diverted their efforts to a sideshow. Uh, invading Afghanistan for which there was very little purpose and uh, and getting themselves caught up in that and delaying the invasion of Iraq which they wanted in the first place so they couldn't have done it short of lunacy and if it's lunacy uh, I don't want to talk about it but uh, who does does it point to who would have gained by attributing the destruction to Saudis well I, I can think of only two people one is Saddam Hussein, who wanted to divert uh, a U.S. attack on Iraq, and the other is Osama bin Laden, um, the Saudis, are his worst enemies. Uh, to try to get the United States to you know, hate Saudis would be wonderful. And at least I can't think of anyone else who might have benefited. So it seems to me all these huge efforts are essentially directed to absolving the Bush administration and blaming Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and I just don't see any point in taking off years of study to prove that uh,
0: The woman right at the back row there fifth in, yeah Thanks Hi, my name is uh, Frederica I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about um, human right, uh, no, women's rights in the 21st century considering the fact that um, the convention of the elimination of discrimination against women is the uh, Least ratified and most contested um, human rights document. If you could say a little bit about the yeah women's rights in the 21st century, and I won't accept
2: um, there are none. <laughs>
0: uh, would you say something about hu- women's rights in the 21st century, given that the Convention on Women's Rights is the, one of the least
1: ratified conventions? Well, women's rights have improved considerably in the in the last 50 years. Uh, And it wasn't from conventions. It was from activism. Uh, Young people, lots of others, uh, picked up things that have pretty ancient vintage and really worked on them in the 1960s and and their aftermath, the 70s and the 80s. And one result was a very substantial extension of women's rights. It was a long way to go. There's a report just came out from... Think the World, Eco- World Economic Forum was reported here a couple of days ago, uh, ranking countries in terms of how they deal with women's rights. Uh, Britain was, I think around 40th or something like that. Uh, so yes, there's a long way to go, but there's been a vast improvement. Uh, and, and that's the way human rights are protected. Uh, I, I can't even think of an exception. So take say freedom of speech. Which is extremely important. The, the United, that's one respect in which the United States is, to my knowledge, alone in the world in setting a high standard for freedom of speech, way beyond Britain, which has horrible laws and principles that restrict freedom of speech. Uh, but uh, the U.S. does have high standards. They are not in the Bill of Rights. Uh, they did not exist through the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, they began to be talked about a little bit in dissenting uh, judgments in the Supreme Court around the 1920s, and gradually there were a few comments about it. Uh, but they really, uh, the court reached a high standard in the 1960s. Now, that was in the context of the Civil Rights Movement. In the context of the Civil Rights Movement, the court addressed a case uh, uh, Sullivan v. Alabama, I think it was called, uh, which uh, was a case brought by the state of Alabama condemning the uh, civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and others, uh, for the crime of seditious libel. Uh, seditious libel goes you know, way back in history, and it's sustained in most countries like Britain. There's a, still a law of seditious libel. In fact, it's even been brought up occasionally in recent years. Uh, seditious libel is... Assaulting the state with words. Okay. And seditious libel becomes a more serious crime if the words are true, because then it assaults the state even more dangerously. <laughs> well, in the, and that was the charge in the uh, 1964 case. The civil rights movement had denounced uh, racist sheriffs in Alabama. It's a state, and so they were charged with seditious libel. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the su- Supreme Court struck down the law. Which was a U.S. law, as it is just about everywhere else in England, for example. Uh, And uh, okay, that raised the standard for civil rights. Uh, There was a further now it's a value judgment improvement in the standards, at least by my judgment, in 1969, in a case involving the Ku Klux Klan, a violent, vicious, racist, terrorist group. Uh, There were charges against them for speech, uh, incitement and so on, racist speech. And the court decided, uh, the court reached essentially the enlightenment standard, which I think was correct, that speech should be protected up to participation in imminent crime. So, for example, if you and I go into a store and you have a gun and I say, shoot, That's not protected. Uh, But up to participation in an imminent crime, speech should be given protection. Well, the court did accept that in the case of the Klan, and I I think that's right. Uh, And again, I think the U.S. is probably alone in the world in having such a stand. But all of these things came in the course of popular activism. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened, just like women's rights. Just like minority rights. In fact, uh, it's hard to think of a counterexample. So yes, a long way to go, but a tremendous improvement.
0: Thank you, uh, guy on the third row, yeah, with a stripy sweater. Um, my name is Pong. Um, thank you, Professor, um, for the um, presentation. I totally agree with you regarding um, the um, responsibility to protect that it needs to go through the. Um, UNSC, but do you think that there need to be like a modification of the universities, um, United Nations Security Council? Since the member who are sitting in the Security Council, um, for example, like China, will always veto um, intervention um, in Burma. And uh, the second question relating to that, what do you see in terms of the role of China? Um, and the protection of human rights.
1: I I didn't understand what exception is. The first question
0: question is that um, he agrees with you generally but says that if if these rights need to go through, I mean, if a resolution needs to go through the Security Council, don't you think that the balance of the Security Council is wrong, particularly with China, which will always veto an intervention in uh, Burma? um, And... Secondly, what do you think more broadly about the role of China in human rights?
1: Well, there's a common view that uh, the Security Council is uh, prevented from acting by China and Russia. But there's an easy way to determine whether that's true or not. Take a look at the record of vetoes. Uh, that will take you ten minutes on the Internet. And what you will, dis- <laughs> what you will discover is very straightforward. Uh, up until 1965, the U.S. didn't veto any resolutions. In the early days of the U.N., uh, Russia was vetoing all the resolutions. And a very simple answer for the reason why. Uh, U.S. power was so extraordinary right after the Second World War that the U.N. was just an instrument of U.S. power, and the United States was using it to to beat Russia. So, of course, they vetoed everything. And that led to an interesting chapter of uh, academic social science, anthropology and other fields, leading scholars, you know, Margaret Mead, and others, uh, developed theories to try to explain why the Russians were so negative. How come they're saying no all the time? And the main theory that was developed and you know, seriously discussed was that Russians raise their children in swaddling clothes, and that makes them negative. So when they get to the Security Council, they're always saying no. Uh, I, I was a grad student at the time at Harvard, and maybe three of us thought that this was comical. We used to call it diaperology. But that was the, that was the, ex- the serious academic explanation for the Russian vetoes. And uh, in the 50s, the U.N. became more diverse with decolonization and with the reconstruction of the other industrial societies. By the mid-60s, it was no longer a pliable instrument of U.S. power. And that's when the vetoes started. From that point on till the present, as you'll discover if you look, the United States is way in the lead in vetoing Security Council resolutions, Britain is second, and nobody else is even close. Okay, That's the record of vetoes. And of course the most extreme way to violate a Security Council resolution is to veto it. And we know exactly who's responsible. Well, that's not the way it's usually presented in the academic literature. I remember reading a review of security vetoes by an eminent Oxford scholar of international law who pointed out accurately that the Russians are in the lead in vetoing Security Council resolutions. Yeah, it's true. Uh, If you take the first days of the uh, UN and you eliminate the last 40 years... Uh, which slightly changes the story when you look in the background. So yes, there's a possibility that China might veto something, though I don't, I'm not sure China's ever even cast a veto. So, but it could happen. Uh, on the other hand, the main vetoes are the United States and Britain. Uh, okay. And yes, they continue to block Security Council action. Uh, I mentioned a couple of cases before, but it continues all the time. Uh, and it's a problem. So what do you do when, uh, uh, say the, to take the, just take the example I cited when the U when the United States uh, vetoed two Security Council resolutions uh, calling on all states to observe international law uh, and uh, supporting the World Court judgment against the United States for massive international terrorism and when Britain abstained politely well what do you do in that case the answer is there isn't much you can do except by the populations of the countries. Uh, the populations of the countries can do a lot. They can c- condemn it. You know, They can organize. They can demonstrate. They can act. They can put into, pa- into office a government that cares about international law and international terrorism. Well, nobody did it. And part of the reason why nobody did it is because nobody knew about it. It wasn't reported. It's not discussed. You, know, you have to go to the records of the scholarly literature to see what happened, parts of the scholarly literature most of it doesn't discuss it uh, and yeah that's the way you get uh, uh, human rights protected, uh, nobody's going to carry out an intervention in the United States, uh, nobody's going to intervene in, in the United States and Britain when they uh, uh, implement genocidal sanctions in uh, Iraq as they did or when they invade Iraq a couple of years later In fact, what happens is that the invaders of Iraq are uh, lauded for their achievement. Like, for example, they can be nominated to be president of the European Union, to take one one example. Uh, Okay, well, the only people who can do anything about that are the populations of the countries. Uh, uh, As far as China and Burma is concerned, I don't think China ought to be protecting Burma. I don't think that Chevron should be one of the major investors in Burma. I'm pretty sure that British Petroleum is still a, a major investor in Burma. I know it was up to a couple few years ago. Uh, so, and, those, and there are things we can do about that. We can't do a lot about China, but we can do a lot about Chevron and uh, British Petroleum and Total and so on. Uh, so yeah, let's uh, take a look at the things we can do something about and do them. and. When we do that, we can try to think of ways in which we can deal with uh, countries where we can't do anything about them. The standard procedure, almost like a definition of intellectual life, is the opposite. The standard procedure is let's uh, torment ourselves about the crimes of others, which we can't do anything about, uh, and let's ignore or deny our own crimes, often much worse ones, which we can do a lot about. That's standard.
0: I think I should come down here. I'm going to give uh, the guy in the T-shirt, which says, I love Cairns, Australia. <laughs> and since you, since you um, oh, okay. had, a lot of, had a go at the Australians, which, of course, is guaranteed to make you popular in England, um, <laughs> uh, I think I ought to give him a chance. Okay?
2: It turns out I'm Canadian. but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was wondering, uh, my name's Alex, I was wondering if you could comment on the role of institutions elite academic institutions like the lse in society how you see it and and perhaps what it, what it could be
1: as opposed to what it is incidentally uh, i gave talks about this in australia all over the place and they were very popular uh, <laughs> one of them was given in canberra at the national Press Club, whatever they call the Royal Press Club, and it was broadcast over national television. They liked it so much they repeated it over national television. Uh, Australians were not at all happy about this stuff, and it was, in fact, one of them's here, it was very strongly, uh, uh, had very strong opposition. In fact, the population of Australia compelled the government in 1999 to start trying to do something about the atrocities that the government was supporting in East Timor. And it was an Australian led uh, peacekeeping force that was allowed to enter after Clinton called off the dogs. Now that's another fact that Western intellectuals can't look at. Uh, there was 25 years of massive destruction. Uh, Clinton, in Clinton's view, Suharto, the, was our kind of guy. Uh, The U.S. and Britain supported it right through the atrocities of 1999, which were increasing. Uh, Britain was the worst. Uh, Even after the destruction, even after the European Union had imposed finally uh, some kind of embargo on arms, Britain kept supplying them. It was supplying uh, jets to Indonesia. This is called the ethical foreign policy, I think, is what it was called at that time. Uh, but the United States finally, uh, under tr- Clinton, under tremendous pressure, uh, international and domestic, a lot of the pressure was coming from uh, right wing Catholic Church sources and also popular groups. Finally, Clinton told the Indonesians, okay, the game is over. Literally, like a couple of words. They instantly withdrew and allowed a peacekeeping force to enter, Australian-led peacekeeping force to enter without resistance. Well, what does that tell you about the preceding 25 years? It tells you a lot, but try to find somebody who mentions it because it tells you too much about ourselves and therefore it's off the agenda. Uh, That's not about your question. (laughs) about the question really you would answer. I mean, you know way more about the LSE than I do. So you can evaluate what it what its role is and what it does. I mean, I can tell you something about universities I know better, like my own, for example. Well, my own is an interesting case. It's, it's, it's not. It's a. It's a school of engineering and science, not LSE. Uh, but uh, and I've been there for you know, over 55 years, so I've seen it undergo a lot of changes. Uh, in the 1950s, it was about 100 percent supported by the Pentagon. In fact, I was there in a laboratory that was 100% supported by the three armed services. Now, interestingly, it was probably the freest university in the country. I mean, I was able to survive at MIT with my own political activism and views and because they didn't care. Pentagon didn't care. I mean, the Pentagon knows something about the economy that economists prefer not to look at, that the economy depends very heavily on the dynamic state sector. So if you use computers and the Internet and fly in an airplane, uh, you use uh, satellites and on and on. You're, In fact, by, by now, if you use uh, pharmaceuticals, you get you know, uh, genetic engineering involved, anything like that, you're relying pretty heavily on the state sector, very heavily. Uh, the electronics-based economy of the you know, a couple of decades after the Second World War uh, was carried out, developed under the pretext of defense. So, like, you don't go to the population and say, look, uh, we want your taxes, so maybe 40 years from now your kids can have a laptop. Uh, What you tell them is the Russians are coming. So you pour a lot of money into defense, and the Pentagon generals and admirals who understand something about the economy uh, put it into places like MIT, and say, do whatever you feel like. If you want to organize resistance to overthrow the government, that's fine. As long as you're doing your work. Uh, and you do your work, okay, we'll pay you. And and, and that's been the way it was. It's, it's, I could never have survived at Harvard or down the road. It, it's, it would have been impossible. Uh, but at MIT, it was okay. This lab that I mentioned with... Uh, hundred percent supported by the three armed services was one of the main academic centers of resistance in the country. I don't mean protest, I mean resistance. I mean like I was facing a long jail sentence, others were, but they didn't interfere uh, uh, because they knew you know that their priorities were different, and it kind of continues like that now MIT itself was a very kind of conservative place, like fifty years ago when i when I got there. If you walk down the halls of MIT, what you saw was well-dressed, uh, deferential, white males. Okay, now you walk down the halls and it looks like this. Okay, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's a big change. And it came from the usual sources, in this case mostly student activism. And that affected the attitude towards what goes on. So questions about the uses of technology (coughs) never arose until the late 60s when there was a small group of students who uh, were pretty active. Uh, Some of them you may know, like Michael Albert who runs Zenet and others, uh, and they essentially radicalized the student body, Uh, so much so that within a, a year Mike Albert was elected student body president on a, Program so radical I can't even (laughs) repeat it. Uh, But uh, and and uh, some of the actions that were taken were quite interesting. Uh, Most of them I opposed. I mean, I have terrible tactical judgment, but I was working with I was close to all these students. But for example, there there was an effort back in the 60s to set up what were called sanctuaries for deserters. It was usually small peace groups or. Church groups or something. Uh, You you set up a, somebody wants to desert, you organize a few people to stay with them until the FBI comes and picks them up. So the students at MIT wanted to set up a sanctuary. I mean, I thought the idea was crazy. Nobody cared about anything. Uh, But they decided to go ahead anyway. And uh, over my, yeah, I participated, though I thought it was crazy. Uh, And they had a, There was a marine deserter, interesting, serious guy, he knew exactly what he was doing. Everybody went through it and talked it through, and uh, they they took a room in the student center and maybe ten people were there with this deserter, tried to call a press conference, nobody came. Uh, Without going into the details, within two weeks the entire institute was shut down. Thousands of students were in the student center. There was an ongoing 24-hour 60-style 60 60-style 60 event, uh, r- ranging from seminars on everything you can think of to rock music to smells that I couldn't identify, but they <laughs> could. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and the whole institute was changed, it's totally changed. Um, the administration, just a couple of months later, called it, closed the institute for a day to consider problems of. Uh, ethical uses of technology and what does it mean what should we be doing you know and it's cha- it stayed like that um the union of concerned scientists which is a, a, a an organization of um, scientists and engineers uh, nobel prize laureates and others that grew out of that and it does very good work uh, and uh, the atmosphere of the place changed uh, well okay that institutions are not fixed you know they can be changed through the activities of participants. It's usually young people who do it. Actually, things happened in the 70s which are highly relevant to what's going on today. Uh, the big issue today, you know, we're all supposed to be excited about, is whether Iran is developing nuclear weapons and missiles, and there's a lot to say about that. But uh, in the 1970s, uh, when the Shah was ruling Iran, uh, the U.S. government wanted strongly to provide... Iran with uh, nuclear technology, because he was an ally after all. That was Kissinger, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, uh, all trying to press uh, to get Iran to develop nuclear technology, which of course can be converted into nuclear weapons. And MIT was pretty naturally picked out as the place to do it. So an agreement was uh, made secretly for the nuclear engineering department to essentially sell itself to the Shah of Iran. I mean, didn't call it that. But they would bring in Iranian nuclear engineers and the Shah would give some unknown amount of money to MIT. Well, like every secret agreement, it pretty quickly leaked out. And uh, the students were galvanized. There were huge protests. Uh, there was finally a student referendum in which 80% of the student body opposed it. It was so much of a fuss that the faculty had to react. So what do you do? You call a faculty meeting. Usually nobody goes to a faculty meeting because it's too boring. Some guy reading something falls asleep. Uh, This time everybody showed up. must have been a thousand people there because it was a big event on campus. And uh, we had a debate about whether this should go through. Uh, There were maybe a handful of us. I was one, maybe five or six others on the faculty who spoke up in opposition. And finally it was voted about 80% in favor now that's quite interesting because the faculty are the students of 20 years ago or 10 years ago but enough had changed so that the students were just entirely different in their social, ethical and other commitments so you get the distinction Uh, and of course that ends up changing the institute because the students will be the faculty 20 years from now And those kinds of changes, I talk about MIT because I know it, but similar changes were taking place in many, many places. Um, They probably were here. In fact, I I remember things at LSE, you know, I don't like to talk about it, I don't know that much, but I happened to be teaching at Oxford in 1969, and uh, I was invited to give a talk at LSE by one of the great figures here, Karl Popper. Uh, At that time, there had been a student demonstration in which students, uh, I think, took down an iron gate that had some significance, I forget what. And there was one young sort of radical on the faculty, Robin Blackburn, who's a personal friend. Actually, I just had dinner with him last night. But uh, we were reminiscing about it. Uh, There was a, a petition circulated at Oxford where I was saying a very mild petition in support of academic freedom. I don't think it even mentioned Blackburn and the LSE, but said, like, academic freedom would be a nice idea, something like that. And there were people who signed it at Oxford, almost all American visitors. I mean, not the Oxford members of the Communist Party and so on. They didn't want to sign it. I think mostly on kind of like class grounds or elite grounds or whatever it was. But the Americans, even right wing Americans and supporters of Nixon, they all signed the petition, knowing what it was. And, you know, I finally, when I got to visit LSE, uh, at first they wouldn't, I, I said I would only go if they allowed Robin Blackburn in. He was not allowed on campus. So finally, reluctantly, they made some special arrangements, and he was guided in by people who guarded him and watched him every minute to make sure you know he didn't go to the bathroom or something. But uh, I mean, that was LSE in 1969, I'm pretty sure it's quite different now, and it certainly didn't look like this at that time. But uh, but you know that's really for you to you and people who know things about it to say. But the institutions can change, and they do uh, very noticeably.
0: I must say one conclusion I hadn't expected from this evening is that I should go out and seek funding from the Ministry of Defence. (laughs) Um, But uh, I'm going to take – we're kind of over time, but I'm going to take one last question, the woman on this uh, third row, if that's okay with you, just to run. Let's have one more. Thanks. Okay, really quickly. um, Authors like Mark Hauser have suggested that there is a universal grammar of morality. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that and if you think there is a – sort of innate notion of human rights that
1: we have? Well, I think the answer has to be yes for reasons that David Hume discussed. Um, It wasn't just Adam Smith who had smart things to say. Scottish Enlightenment was a great place. If I had a choice to go somewhere, it would be Scotland in the late 18th century. But uh, uh, Hume wrote about this. Uh, He put it in different terms than we would use. But he pointed out that uh, humans have the capacity to make moral judgments in new situations in ways that conform to the understanding of others. And he says the only way in which this is possible is if there are principles that are part of our n- nature. Uh, they're, In his terms, they're instincts meaning part of our nature. He said these are different from the animal instincts that we share with other animals, like obvious ones. Uh, So we have some kind of uh, instincts that are an original part of our nature, and these somehow yield judgments in novel situations uh, which are comprehensible to others and often accepted by others. And if we reach different judgments, we don't just have to throw you know, throw stones at each other, Uh, we can have a kind of moral discourse about it and try to find common ground and see if we can go from there. And he says, well these are just human capacities. Uh, So it's only possible if we would now say, you know, part of our nature means just genetically determined. And it's like a grammar, so the term moral grammar is not unreasonable. Some fixed set of principles that yields uh, consequences that we use all the time like when you and I are talking and understand each other more or less uh, it's because we share internal principles that produce uh, th- that allow us to interpret and understand a novel Expressions that are appropriate to situations, but are not caused by situations—crucial distinction. Big issue in the seventh. That's the core of Cartesian philosophy, for example. Hume was picking it up from that background. Uh, so yeah, there has to be a moral grammar. And furthermore, it's got to be shared. Uh, humans have fundamentally not evolved in any meaningful ways since they left Africa maybe 50,000 years ago. I mean, superficial changes, you know, skin color things like that. But as far as cognitive and moral capacities are concerned, there's the slightest evidence of any change. I mean, you take a child from a, an infant from a Stone Age village in Papua New Guinea and raise him in London, he'll it, be indistinguishable from anybody here in Speech and moral judgment and everything, which means that we 're all basically identical and it 's in fact known that a, a genetic variability among humans is extremely slight as compared with other animals uh, and it 's pretty obvious reasons for it. I mean modern homo sapiens is a very recent development you know, maybe 100 or 200,000 years which is just nothing on the evolutionary scale Uh, and uh, there was a a diversity in Africa but only one strain survived the ones who came out of East Africa maybe 50,000 years ago 75,000 years ago now maybe it's a little more complex than that but something like that is apparently true so there's no, no possibility really of any significant variation so it must be shared among all of us And if there seem to be sharp differences in moral judgment, for example, or cultural practices or languages, it has to be superficial because it must be that fundamentally it's all shared. Okay, then comes the empirical problem. Let's try to find out what it is. And, in fact, there's interesting work on that. Uh, There's a book coming out from Cambridge Press, University Press, by uh, uh, John Mikhail, He's actually a former student of mine at MIT who uh, has done very good work on... uh, uh, Part of his work was a critique of the critical analyses of John Rawls. Uh, Rawls, when his theory of justice, very famous now, he originally took this point of view quite explicitly, but he came under such attack from philosophers that he kind of dropped it and pursued other things. Well, Mikhail reviews the critique and argues, I think very effectively, that it has no grounds, and argues that Rawls should have kept with that kind of grammar-based model, and then he develops it. And he also began to do experimental work with some of the experimental psychologists at MIT on trying to test moral judgments from infancy on, and also comparatively. And by now, a lot of others have been doing it, too, uh, Mark Hauser, who's a, a primatologist and cognitive scientist at Harvard, has worked on this. He has a book that came out a couple of years ago called, I think, Moral Grammar, in fact. Moral Minds, yeah. And, uh, and there, you know, others are doing it, too. And it, 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 I mean, something's got to be correct about it for Hume's reasons. But to try to find it out is not so simple. You know, It's pretty hard to find out anything about insects and uh, humans are not only far more complex but we're barred from doing the experiments that would teach us something like you could learn a lot about human capacities uh, if for example you could raise infants in controlled environments okay we don't do that fortunately but if there were a lot of mangalas around we would do it and we'd probably learn a lot and you can't do uh, invasive experimentation with humans so you can't stick electrodes into the brain and figure out what this cell is doing when you do so and so. I mean we happen to know a lot about the human visual system, but that's because it's almost identical to the visual system of cats and monkeys. And we do allow ourselves to torture them, maybe rightly or wrongly, but we do it. So, yeah, you find out a lot about the visual system. But you can't, there's no comparative evidence possible, very little comparative evidence in these cases, because there aren't any other organisms that have the moral and linguistic and other faculties. It's some unique thing that developed somewhere in East Africa, maybe hundred thousand years ago and there's nobody else around I mean maybe it developed many times but humans also happen to be a pretty savage creature and uh, right through human history uh, large way back a million years ago uh, large animals disappear when proto-humans show up and uh, whatever might have been around in Africa is gone the Neanderthals Hung around until maybe thirty thousand years ago, but it's about it. So we, there's basically no comparative evidence, and uh, and you can't do invasive experimentation. You can't you can't do the experiments that come to mind, like say raising infants in controlled environments. So you have to find pretty indirect ways to try to study these things, language, moral grammar, and so on. But I think there's pretty good reason to believe that there's something critically important there. I mean, this violates the assumptions of almost all of contemporary philosophy uh, for example, one dogma of contemporary philosophy it really is a dogma is that uh, there cannot be rules that you're following that are not accessible to consciousness now that has to be false I mean, nobody has any way to access whatever's governing what you and I are now doing but it's a dogma that it can't exist, uh, not for Hume, you know he was willing to accept it. Uh, and uh, those things have and there's also all kind of adult uh, doctrines in the you know, say the modern postmodern literature that uh, says everything's a social construction and it all differs and so on. so that that has to go to the extent that it's comprehensible not a big problem for me cuz I don't understand it but uh, the uh, and a lot more you know but but uh, I think Hume had his finger on the answer
0: thank you we've run well over time
2: you've been very <laughs> generous